Thank you, Amy. Nerman, you've got a good wife, brother. Um, so, obviously, we're uh, starting a new series. Now, this is going to be confusing, so just hold tight for a second. This is a six-part series. We're starting today, and I will preach again next Sunday, and then our favorite Kentuckian will be here, Dr. R.T. Kendall, and I'm sure he would appreciate that, yep. Then I'll come back again with part three of our series on July 30th. And then Dad will be back for three weeks in August. Just, just, just wait. And then part four, five, and six will be the end of August and the first two weeks of September. But really all that you need to know is that you need to go ahead and cancel all of your Labor Day plans <laughs> because you don't want to miss part five of this series. Go ahead and call your Airbnb and tell them you have, it's the Lord's will that you be here. (laughs) Um, Many of you know and would have seen the video, I'm doing my doctorate of ministry out at Master's Seminary, and part of that involved in my final term now is doing a a big preaching project, and I've chosen doing the unity of the church. And so we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. So, with that being said, if you would turn in your pew Bibles, uh, in the NIV pew Bible, it's page 1771. I'm reading from the ESV in case the translation sounds slightly different. If you have an ESV pew Bible from the chapel, which I don't know why you would, but that would be page 1131. If you brought one from over there, maybe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this, your holy word, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would give us attentive eyes, ears, hearts, minds, that we would see what it is that you have called us to as your people that you have called us, to, called us to a oneness with Christ and a oneness and a unity with one another. Father, we ask that you would help us over these coming weeks as we study this in depth. Father, we pray against stumbling stones that might get in our way, obstacles, distractions. Father, that we can keep our eyes set on Christ and his glory. For we pray this in his name. Amen. If I were to go around and ask each of you what you thought the greatest danger facing the church is today, I would imagine we'd get quite a lot of different answers. Some might say, well, it's the sort of dwindling numbers of, of churches some might say, well, it's, it's apathy within the church. Or, or, or some might say, you know, the church is too conservative. Or, the, or some might say the church isn't conservative enough. Some might say it's the way that we look to the outside world. Well, as we just discussed over, over six weeks, spread out across three months. Well, that wasn't a joke, but it's fine. <laughs> This, it's like my Genesis series at 9 o'clock. We're in part 29 or something. It's been going on seemingly forever. We're only halfway done. But because the vision of our church is, is leaving a legacy of faith, is uh, passing on the, the truth to not just the next generation, but, but passing on the truth to one another, I think it's important that we would be clear on what it is and who it is that, that brings us together, that, that unifies us, that, that, that holds us together. 
It will also serve to protect us if we hear and respond to what Paul is saying in these chapters in his first letter to Corinth, that it protects us from two great dangers in the church. Two great dangers in the church. The first is when we lose the truth. When we lose the truth in our lives. One of the big buzzwords over the last decade or so has been this word, diversity, diversity. We need more diversity. Everyone's pursuing diversity, diversity of religion, diversity of opinion, diversity of sexuality, diversity in the arts, diversity, diversity, diversity. But you have to ask the question, to what end do we reach with diversity? Unless there is an agreed-upon truth, diversity only fragments and, and causes greater division. If you were on a sports team and you had around you a, 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 a tremendous wealth of, of skilled athletes, skilled position players, but none of them were agreed on what the goal was or, 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 or who to pass to or, or what the rules of the game were even, then you would probably find yourself not winning many games. You wouldn't find much accomplishment with a team like that. If you had a band that played a, a, a diversity of different instruments, but there was no uh, arrangement or agreed tempo, it would be a total disaster. Or as some people call it, jazz. Please don't email me telling me how much you love jazz. But do you see that unless there is something to hold all of that together, it becomes fragmented. And the same goes for a church. Unless there is unity, there will only be fractured chaos. It's the, the natural progression of things. Our unity is in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that gets unpacked for us in this letter of 1 Corinthians as it gives us the glue for unity as well as the blessing of diversity. So I don't want you to have heard that you know, diversity is a big thing and we don't care about it. Diversity is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but it needs to be held together by truth. The second danger in the church is when we lose love. When we lose love. Now listen, there is plenty of self-love to go around but self-love doesn't help families. Self-love doesn't help friendships. Self-love doesn't bring peace or order. Self-love only helps self. And in the long term, it will ultimately lead to being alone. But the Bible teaches us something different. 
the Bible teaches us selfless love. From the very beginning, God has demonstrated selfless love, working out his plan of salvation that would crescendo in the ultimate selfless act on the cross. How can the church be the church? How can the bride of Christ shine brightly to the non-believing world if we are broken and fractured, if we are self-focused and loveless? And the answer is quite obviously that it cannot. It cannot. Because then, to the rest of the world, we look like the rest of the world. And what kind of testimony is that? This letter is written to the church in Corinth. This is um, south-central Greece. Paul's visited, and he's taken the gospel to this city, and he's stayed for 18 months or so, and he had high hopes for the Corinthian Christians. But soon after he leaves, there's division, there's rivalry, there's chaos within the church. Corinth was in a major port city, Uh, Things that were prized, as we'll look at in future weeks, are wisdom and celebrity status, and and, uh, these are the things that they prize. It's a a lot of uh, sexual immorality in this area. And in a major pagan city, there was so much tension in the church on how to relate to the rest of the world. One group felt association with non-believers was permissible and necessary. Another argued that they should be isolationists and preserve holiness. Then they had misunderstandings about end times issues. There were some who thought that they were more spiritual and and some who thought that they were more knowledgeable than other believers. There were insults being made about Paul. There was rampant immorality. There were lawsuits between believers. It kind of sounds like the Western church today. And then the Corinthians take time to actually write to Paul himself. They're asking him questions, uh, good questions about singleness and, and marriage, questions about freedom and what you can and cannot do, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and do I hold my rights? Do I give up my rights? What do I do? Questions about the resurrection. They're really genuinely confused over, over a lot of issues. Now, this is one of four letters that Paul would have sent to Corinth, and in God's wisdom and his sovereignty, only two of them have survived. And the letter does answer a lot of questions. Again, we're only going to be focusing on the first three chapters, but it's still, it's good to know the broad theme of what's happening and why this is being written. But it's also written because the Corinthians are very young and are very much in danger of being derailed. They were in danger of being derailed because everyone was looking after number one. We see this in our world today. The world is interested in me and now. I remember watching the British car show Top Gear and they were discussing news items and one of the items they were talking about was the 
ethical decision that self-driving cars would one day have to make. If I'm speeding along the road and a pedestrian walks out, the car has to make the ethical decision to save the driver and hurt the pedestrian or to save the pedestrian and hurt the driver. One of the commentators on the show said this should be an easy resolution. There needs to be a giant me button in the middle of the dashboard so you could say, save me, run over whoever it is that just walked out in front of me. And that's how our world thinks today. I'm sure many of you have seen someone run a red light, probably even this morning. Maybe they were heading to church. That actually happened to me one time, and I may or may not have been the one running the light, but (laughs) am I preaching today? Hopefully they don't recognize me. But you see... This is similar to what's happening in Corinth. This thinking has, has, has seeped into the church. The world, the worldly thinking of, of self-preservation, the, the concept of, 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 of me and now has gotten into the church and we're beginning to think like the world. And when people are looking for a church, what, what are their criteria? Often they're coming in and they're, they're trying to assess everything by how they feel. Does, does this church give me a good feeling or a bad feeling? It's based on, on, on themselves and it's, it's based on the immediate. And if nothing fulfills that criteria of, of feelings uh, self and the immediate, then, then the, the church can be written off as no good. And that is a mark of immaturity. M- my prayer is that as we go through these three chapters in 1 Corinthians, that, that, that each of us would grow in, in wisdom and maturity and unity and love. And let me just explain. By unity, I do not mean uniformity. I'm not saying we all need to be identical. Again, the, the great rich blessing of diversity. But my prayer is that we would grow in maturity, unity, wisdom, and love as we study God's Word. In chapter 1, Paul is really laying a foundation for the church. It's a foundation that he had already laid when he established the church, but for him, he needs to go back and reestablish what the foundation is. He has to get the foundation right before he can start going around to the issues and the questions that are coming up and putting out the fires around the church. Because if we don't get the foundation right first, then Often teaching can be misunderstood, it can be misconstrued, it can be read through a, uh, a paradigm prism of, of, your own, uh, of your own making. It's not too unlike the tower in Pisa. If you don't know, Pisa is Greek for marshland. And the builder of the tower essentially took a large slab of marble and laid it down and only dug down 10 feet. So it had a very poor foundation. And as they were building it up, they noticed that the tower was beginning to lean in one direction. So they decided to compensate. And so to compensate, they built the columns up one inch higher on the side where it was leaning. 
But then the tower began to lean in the other direction. And so yet again, they decided to compensate. And so they added two inches to the columns on the opposite side until you get what we have today, which at 9 o'clock I thought that was disappointing. I I think it's leaning more than that. We need to get a better angle of that. But do you understand that if we get the foundations wrong, you will get lost. You compensate and you end up in disaster. Just as the builders should have gone in Pisa, should have gone back to the foundations and just destroyed whatever they had built at that point and dug deeper and made it a proper foundation, Paul doesn't want to just write back responses to the questions of the Corinthians. Because that could potentially just offset and compensate in particular areas, but instead he takes them back to the foundations. So what is the foundation? In the first three verses, Paul wants it abundantly clear who he is and to whom he is writing. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you picked this up from the reading, but the repetition of the Lord Jesus Christ in Christ Jesus, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, okay, we get it. We get what you're, you're obviously trying to draw attention to Christ. He seems to be an important figure in this letter, rightfully so. Now, it's important to understand that Paul's not just a guy with an opinion. He's not just a commenter on a, on a, on a social media site. He, he's not just a, a, a guru, you know, preaching the power of positive thinking. This is Paul, the apostle, who has seen the resurrected Christ and has received specific instructions to preach the gospel. He has power and authority that have been given to him that others do not have. And he is the one that laid the cornerstone of the Corinthian church. And so when he speaks or when he writes, the Corinthians would do well to listen. And so for us as well, as God is speaking by his spirit through his instrument, Paul, that we would have ears to hear. Now, apostle is a unique title, meaning sent one. That's why our church is called the Church of the Apostles, that we are built on the foundation of the the teachings and the authority of God's apostles. And it, it was the will of God that Paul would be an apostle of Christ. That's why Jesus specifically targets him and confronts him on the road to Damascus, And that's why he's reaching out to these Gentile communities, even in Corinth here, to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's how he writes that. Notice he doesn't say, to the group of people who gather in Corinth because they worship God. No, you belong to him. You are the church of God. You are his people called by his name. And God, in his sovereignty, has placed you in Corinth. That's the city that you live in. That's the city where you worship. 
So don't be thinking, I wish I lived in Ephesus. You're in Corinth. It's a city of terrible reputation. It's a city that is totally caught up in self and pleasure. A city that was once completely shrouded in darkness, and he has you there for a reason. It is amazing that in that city, God would be saving anyone. That, that should really amaze us. But then again, we could just substitute Corinth with Atlanta. Could we not? A city that loves self, a city that loves pleasure. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You are saints. My son asked me this question the other day. He said, what is a saint? And I thought, you know, well, it's people in heaven that have halos on. That's not true. You all are saints if you find yourself in Christ Jesus. You have been set apart by God even though you don't feel like it at times and even though you don't act like it at times. You are still a saint. You have been you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even your infantile faith. Do you understand that? This is not a spectrum of people who are more in Christ. Even those with infantile faith are in Christ Jesus and are therefore saints. Why does Paul do this? Why does he greet them like this? He is reminding them of, of who they are and to whom they belong. And how often we forget that. How often we forget that. And we, like these Corinthians, think it's about me and now. They have lost sight of who they once were, who they are now, and who they one day will be. Once enemies of God, now redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, one day to be dwelling with God and the saints forever. And the second we forget that, we begin to think like the world, that, that this earth is it, that this is it. And so we need to make the best of it because this is it. And we're out for number one again, and, and, and we go back to self-love, and we go back to self-preservation, and we go back to, to self-focus. And Paul ties the connection with Christ to the unity of the body, the saints, to all those who have been called according to his purposes. There's a call from the Lord and there's a call back, so he calls out and the call returns to him. All those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our Lord, and he is their Lord. 
Paul knows there is division in the church. And so he, even in this to and from line, is, is, is building unity. And then Paul gives thanks. He's thankful because God has shown his grace through Christ because that grace has been shown to the Corinthians because God has given gifts because God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful. Any pastor would give thanks for these things in his church. How good it is that these people have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that not only are they saved eternally, but they are given gifts for the building up of the body. And not only are they saved and given gifts, but they will be brought through, they will be sustained, they will be carried, not by their good works, but because of Christ. What good news this is. Hey, amen belongs here. Uh, last week, there was a, a group of, of pastors. We were having a little conversation, and um, we were talking about how if our mindset is we understand the sovereignty of God, we understand his electing purposes on us, why do we still go back to fear and, and why do we, um, why is there doubt that creeps up in our hearts and in our emotions and our lives and all these things? If we really understood and trusted and had our confidence in who God is and his character and what he's done, that, that there's nothing that could happen to us that would be outside of his purposes. That, that, that not only is salvation secure, but our future on earth is secure in terms of what he has for us to do. That if we lived like that, you can live as a free person. No weapon formed against you can prosper, as was in the song. There's no reason to fear, to doubt. So you can go out and talk to anyone about Christ, about the love of Christ, the love of God for them. And one of the pastors said, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at articulating the gospel. And yet what you were just saying, the other pastor who was sharing this, he said, this warms my heart and encourages me. And the thing is, we can forget this every day, almost moment by moment. And so even pastors need to be hearing the gospel, reminded of the gospel, because our hearts are so quick to forget, our minds are so easy to, to, to let it go. And Corinthians should be rejoicing now, what Paul does here is remarkable. The, the things that, that he is thankful for are the very things that the Corinthians are boasting in, as if it was from themselves. Have they received new life? Yes. They're boasting about it. Paul says, that's come to you by grace. Do they like speaking in tongues? Yes. They're boasting about it and lording it over one another. Paul says, these gifts have come from God and they're for everyone's benefit. Do they love the abilities that God has given, the, the knowledge that God has given? Yes, and they're boasting about it as if it came from them. Paul says, God is the one who gave it to you. 
He's the one who will carry you. He's the one who will deliver you. Oh, how we can take good things and turn them into trophies. How quickly we can turn things into a comparison or, or, or a competition. Oh, my gift isn't as, as adequate as so-and-so. They have the same gift and they're really good at theirs. And so I, you know, how quickly we can turn a spiritual gift into an idol. How quickly we forget the truth. Because the truth is, it all comes from God, it is all for God, and it benefits all of us. So Paul writes, to remind the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That line right there, that is the theme that carries through the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. It's that you're divided and I want you to be unified, but I need to tell you why you're unified and how you're unified. Your division and your disunity, it, 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 it's a bad witness. You're destroying the family. Have you ever seen a disunified family? <clears throat> At one of our old churches, there was a family that used to come and sit in the back, and they just they were always at odds with each other. The husband and wife would stare darts at each other, and the, the kids were just rowdy. Oh, I've got to be careful with rowdy kids because that's we have that too. But <clears throat> but it's more than just like kids being kids. You know what I mean? It's like there's animosity here. You, you know, husband and wife are, are are against each other. Children are against their parents. The, the siblings are against each other, and, and it's really heartbreaking to see that. Why? Be, because we know that that's not what a family is supposed to be. Now, I'm not saying a family is to be perfect and sit and be quiet. And I don't know how you do that. I don't that you must have a magic potion for that. Kids are going to squiggle and, and move around. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about real tension and animosity and, and bitterness in a family. We know that a family is not intended to be split and, and fractured. It's supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be secure and loving and, and, and helpful and caring. But when everyone is out for number one, and those priorities of self, they come before the family, it all falls apart. Here's a simple illustration that a neighbor of mine was reminding me. Paul Tripp was talking about serving his wife ice cream. He said, I, I made a bowl for her, and I made a bowl for myself, and I was walking back to her, and I, I was trying to figure out which one was heavier so that I could keep that one for myself and give her the lighter one. She would never know. But even in his own mind, he knew this is self. I'm looking out for number one on something so trivial as ice cream. When a family member thinks of themselves more highly than, than they ought and strife sets in, it is very challenging. It is very sad, and everyone around can see it and can feel it. Don't be like this, Paul says. You are one family. 
with one Lord and one Savior, you can agree on the important things and let the petty things fall by the wayside. Major on the majors and minor on the minors. Unfortunately, we tend to major on the minors too much. In the Corinthian-specific instance, there was these four factions, these four groups. The Paul group, the Apollos group, the Peter group or Cephas group, and the Christ group. Okay, so the Paul group probably is thinking… We go with Paul because he's an apostle and he started the Corinthian church, so he's the OG. Again, I tried to make that at 9 o'clock and no one got that, so… Okay. Anyway. The Apollos group probably says, Apollos is our pastor now, and he's just really eloquent and he's a great preacher and I love him and so he's my guy, he's my leader. Peter's group, they probably say something along the lines of, Peter's part of the original 12 disciples, and, you know, so we're going to hitch our wagon to him. And the Christ group could be the worst of them all because they could be thinking that we are the only ones who are with Christ. Uh, Everyone else is there following all those other guys. Or they do not submit to authority of, of any leader or teacher except for Christ, which they really just put Christ in their own image and really just means they will only submit to themselves. Okay, so now they have a submission issue. So Paul destroys every one of these lines of thinking. Can Christ be divided? No, thank you. Okay. So I thought you all were trained in this, but… Dad assured me that you're good at this thing. Can Christ be divided? No. Was Paul crucified? No. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. He says, we are all unified, not in this thing or that thing or this group or that group. We are under the cross of Christ. We are united under that act. Here's the problem with the Corinthian church. It's not not the division and the fighting. It's that their eyes were set on the wrong thing. They prize the wrong thing. Their minds are on the wrong thing, and they measure things wrongly. They look at things and say, I like this person. I like this feeling. I like this experience. I like this political, social issue. Their minds are not on the real reason that they are saved and the real reason they are family and the real reason that they're even together in the first place, which is that Christ died for them. Do you remember the Chilean miners from... I don't know, 10 years ago, or the, the boys in Thailand who got trapped in that cave during that monsoon. Just imagine with me for a moment. If those boys or those miners, when they're rescued, they're brought out of this 
horrific situation. And then they begin to immediately fight with each other over who, who comes out of the cave or the tunnel first. Or when they come out, they begin to fight over what kind of sandwiches they're going to have for lunch that day. That would be crazy. That would be insane. You would look at them and say, what are you doing? Why are you fighting over these absolutely trivial things? Look at the big issue. You have been rescued together. What is more important? That's what Paul is doing here. The cross of Christ is infinitely greater than anything that takes place in the local church. The cross of Christ puts us out of danger when we put our trust in Christ. The cross of Christ puts us in fellowship. The cross of Christ is the reason we get new life. The cross of Christ is the reason we get a new family. The cross of Christ is the reason we have a new hope. The cross of Christ is the reason we have a new future. That's why he writes in verses 14 through 16, I'm so glad that I didn't do anything that would detract you. I'm so glad I didn't do the things that would draw attention to me. I'm so glad I didn't baptize you. Uh, all I did was proclaim the gospel, the good news. I, I didn't even use eloquent words when I gave it to you. He didn't want people to stand, which again, this was a big thing in the Corinthian culture, was how, how eloquent are you? Are you a great debater? Are you a great orator? He didn't want people to stand up and say, look how clever Paul is. He's so clever. Oh, look how funny Paul is. He's so funny. He's mastered that illustration. Look how brilliant Paul is. It's his mind. He's got such a mind. He proclaimed Christ in a way that drew people not to Paul, but drew people to Christ. The key to the Christian life is to understand the cross. The cross is the message that you cannot do anything. Christ did it all for you. So trust and take. This will mark you as a mature believer. Let me close with two illustrations. I went and visited, about 10 years ago, I went and preached for a church in the Southwest. And the church building, auditorium, whatever you want to call it, it, it would seat about one or 1,500, 2,000 people, 1,000, 2,000, somewhere in there. And when I got up to preach on Sunday morning, there was about 100 people there. And I thought, well... Maybe people heard I was coming. <laughs> and so I, I asked afterwards, I said, why is such a big building and you have such, why is there so few people? And they said, well, our senior pastor died unexpectedly. And what happened was they formed search committees to find uh, a new pastor. And what happened was Factions began to form within the church and they couldn't agree and they began 
the diversity we're talking about began to be diversity without unity. And, and it fractured so deep that they all left and, and, and did church plants and all kinds of different things. And it was so sad to see that. Now, on the flip side of that, in the United Kingdom, there was a senior pastor who, who stepped down. He retired. And again, factions formed who were putting forth their candidate who they thought would be the best uh, replacement for this pastor. And finally, one of the candidates was nominated and elected to be the new senior pastor of that church. And for the next weeks, months, it was very stressful in that church. And tensions would rise and people were almost sitting on opposite sides according to their factions. But then a, a visiting preacher came and he taught from 1 Corinthians. And the groups got together and they said, we cannot allow this animosity to destroy us. And so they put their differences aside, and for the sake of the gospel, under the banner of love, the church was restored, revived, and began to thrive and became a life-giving place again. Remember the truth of the gospel, the cross of Christ which saves. Remember love, that we can only love because he first loved us. And now, not by design, we get to stay in 1 Corinthians as we celebrate our bond, our unity together under our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if this is when the ushers come up or what. Sorry, I, I'm a little out of... Anyway, I'm going to read to you the whole section from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writing to that exact same church we just talked about. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup in the new covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, us, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Father, we come to you just as Paul has said, reminding us that we are unified in this, your body and blood, which was given for us. So let there not be division among us. May it be the unity that is given to us in Christ who was broken so that we could be brought in, so that we could be put together. And so, Father, let us celebrate this meal together. Enjoy with one another, loving as Christ loved us. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.